0: Thank you for your inspired, infallible and holy word. We pray that uh, as we meditate upon just these few verses now, your spirit would uh, give us understanding and the desire to uh, put into practice what we hear from you through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Things had started so well in Galatia. In each of the four Galatian towns that Paul and Barnabas had uh, visited, there had been conversions amongst the Jews. Not all that many, but there were some. And amongst the Gentiles, and there was a a much more bountiful harvest, shall we say, there. Uh, And that was true in in Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, And in Derby, these four towns that were in that region called Galatia. But things had obviously gone wrong. And they had gone wrong quickly, suddenly, and soon. And surprisingly, of course, they'd gone wrong. And and unexpectedly and seriously. So much so that by verse 6 which is where we start this morning. Uh, and remember, verses 1 to 5, as we have them in English, are actually one sentence in the original. So in Paul's second sentence in this letter, Paul really is coming out with all guns blazing. And John Christostom, one of the very early church fathers, he said this, he said, "'This letter breathes an indignant spirit.'" Well, I don't know. I think if you look at these verses here, that you may feel that a stronger word than indignant is justified as Paul writes to these people. I mean, look at the words he uses. Astonished, deserting, pervert, eternally condemned. That's just a bit more than indignation, isn't it? And if things could go wrong, if you pardon me for saying, in the Presbyterian churches of Galatia, then they could go wrong in the Presbyterian Church of Kerrang as well. Let's not think we are immune from such things. Uh, And it would be wise, therefore, for us to to consider, to listen to the Apostle and what he's saying here, and he's straight-talking, because what he is so forcefully saying needs to be heeded, both individually and collectively. And so let's work our way through these These few verses. Verse 6, we're told, I am astonished, Paul writes, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. I suggest there are two words that stand out in that verse. And those two words are astonished and deserting. And both of them deserve some consideration. I am astonished, says Paul. And to get the force of that word, we we might substitute words like flabbergasted or knocked over or dumbfounded or astounded or nonplussed or or staggered or perhaps gobsmacked. That's the force of what Paul is trying to get across. After they've been around for a while, teachers and nurses and and policemen and doctors and so on, they will often say... Nothing surprises me. Nothing astonishes me anymore. But that's not true of the apostle. That's not true of Paul. But let me just dwell on this. a What sort of things, if any, astonish you? Can I share with you something that astonishes me? It astonishes me that people can come to a funeral and go away unchanged. What do I mean by that? I mean that they've come because they know someone's life has come to an end. They listen to the prayers and they read the words of the hymns and the Bible readings. They hear a message from the Bible which hopefully presents the gospel of Christ that says that it's only those who believe in Christ who enter into eternal life. They hear all of that, but when's the next time you see them in church? At the next funeral. That astonishes me. Paul is astonished that people who have heard the gospel and responded positively to it can now turn away from it and turn away from it so quickly. It's like being thrown a life jacket, putting it on, then taking it off and throwing it away again. Or having a sack of potatoes and carrying it yourself and then putting it down and then putting it back on your shoulders. You see, the gospel offers forgiveness of sins and the gospel offers eternal life. And these people in Galatia, they've said yes. And now they're saying no. Of course, we wouldn't do that, would we? I'm astonished, Paul says, that you are so quickly deserting deserting and actually there are two things that astonish there at, the, at Paul there. the first is, is their desertion but secondly is the suddenness and the quickness of it. We know what it means to desert don't we in military or political terms it means to transfer your allegiance or, or to turn away uh, or, or to swap sides. it would be an equivalent to, to a soldier defecting to the enemy enemy. It would be, uh, in English terms, uh, a Whig becoming a Tory, and I've never worked out which is which, uh, or a Labour supporter becoming a member of the Liberal Party. And in religious terms, it is to become a Christian and then basically renounce your faith. No wonder, no wonder Paul is astonished. And to have done it so quickly. That's incredibly astonishing. We don't know the exact time frame but it appears that defections were still taking place even as Paul wrote. And when you come to think of it, there's at least one Old Testament parallel. And if you think also of that brief reading we had from 2 Corinthians, there was much the same thing happening there in Corinth. But in the Old Testament, how quickly the generation of Israelites that followed Joshua turned away from following the Lord. And I wonder if Australia isn't going down the same path in relation to its Christian heritage. It's no wonder then that this letter cuts to the quick and cuts to the quick so quickly, is it? Paul goes on to say, uh, these people are turning to a different gospel. Really, no gospel at all, verse 7. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion. They're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. In other words, in turning away from the gospel they originally heard and transferring their allegiance to another gospel, the Galatians were perverting the gospel. Perhaps they thought they were just modifying it to to fit the circumstances and this little bit of a modification didn't really matter very much. I mean, you can modify a vehicle and it's supposed to improve its performance, isn't it? I mean, there's no mention here of a denial of the fundamental beliefs about Jesus himself. It appears they still believed in, in the deity of Christ, in his death for sinners and his resurrection. Those things uh, don't appear to be uh, being jettisoned. And therefore, if they're sticking to these fundamentals, how, how can anything go wrong? What could go so drastically wrong? Well, the answer lies, I suggest to you, in the word grace, in the word Grace. They were called by the grace of Christ, and by getting rid of the concept of grace, they're getting rid of the gospel. They were deserting the gospel of grace. Remember what grace is? It's God's free and unmerited gift of salvation. Now, we're not told just yet what the particulars of this other, inverted commas, gospel, Was, or were, we'll come to that in due time, God willing. But In the meantime, we can be sure that anything that affects the gospel so that it is no longer the gospel of grace, of God's grace, meets with the same condemnation. It may sound like the gospel, it may look like the gospel, but unless it's the gospel found in the Bible, the gospel of grace, it's no gospel at all. Just as there were those in Paul's day who were throwing the Galatians, we are told, into confusion, so there are today. We live in a a pluralistic, multicultural, a multi-faith society, don't we? And the pressure is on to say that all religions are the same or they all have the same finish, same ending. They're all true, they all lead to heaven. Haven't you heard words to that effect from different people? And that being the case, we need to drop this idea that there's only one way to heaven, and that way is Christ. That's that's out, isn't it? And there are many church leaders who would push that line, and no doubt you've heard them. Uh, We don't usually listen to to Macca, perhaps you do, but we were listening one day, and uh, there was some place that they were... He was interviewing somebody and there was a a minister there from a Christian denomination who said that the the Muslims in the mosque, that, that they were all brothers. There were no real differences at all. But that's a perversion of the gospel. That's a perversion of the gospel. The Christian gospel says there's only one God. There's only one mediator between God and man. There's only one saviour. There's only one Lord. And the Christian gospel says there's only one ultimate truth. There's only one way of salvation. There's only one divinely inspired book. And to move from that position is to pervert the gospel. To add to it is to poison it. And it only takes one drop of poison to ruin a drink And the drinker. It only takes one rotten apple. How many times did you hear that when you were growing up? Only takes one rotten apple to spoil the whole case. There's a cereal in Safeways or Woolworths, they seem to be mixing them up, uh, called Light Start Plus. Uh, There's a whole row of cereals, but there's one called Light Start Plus, and it comes in quite a few different varieties. But brethren, the gospel is not Christ plus. The gospel is Christ alone. And anything else is a perversion of it. Now, <clears throat> in Australia, most democratic countries, laws come down heavily on those who attempt to pervert the course of justice, don't they? And rightly so. And so does God. God. So does God, as we will now see, uh, come down heavily on those who pervert the gospel of grace. How does he do it? Well, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned, eternally condemned. The original word is anathema, anathema. And to pronounce an anathema against someone was to curse them or to damn them, D-A-M-N, to damn them, to have them eternally condemned. And if you read parts of the Old Testament, there were, there were laws where, where a person could be doomed to destruction. He could be unredeemable. He would be unable to escape the death penalty. Now, you may not like that, uh, but the fact is, it's pointing out the extremely serious nature of the offence, isn't it? Well, against whom? Against whom would such a terrible curse, such a, a terrible condemnation, such a terrible imprecation be pronounced? Well, Paul makes it clear, doesn't he? Anyone who preaches a gospel other than the one than was preached to the Galatians. Anyone, with no exceptions. Even if we, Paul says. So that would mean Paul and Barnabas. Or if you taken in the sense of the sort of the royal we, Paul himself, even if Paul himself. Or one of the other apostles, Peter, James, or John or even if one of them preached another gospel, then their punishment would be to be eternally condemned. Uh, Paul also says, not only even if we, but if an angel from heaven, an angel from heaven covers any real or imagined heavenly visitors. Joseph Smith, you heard of Joseph Smith? He's the founder of... of, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons. Joseph Smith says that an angel appeared to him to give him the, gospel, the, the the Book of Mormon, even if an angel from heaven. Or Muhammad. Muhammad says he received this message. O Muhammad, of a truth, you are the prophet of God. Fear not, I am his angel, Gabriel. So whether it's Joseph Smith or Muhammad, they both claim to have been received a message from an angel. But even if we are an angel from heaven, Paul says, should preach another gospel, let him be eternally condemned. Martin Luther uh, has a, a very vivid way of uh, contrasting things, and he says in relation to this, he says that which does not teach Christ is not apostolic, even if Peter and Paul be the teachers. Then he goes on to say, on the other hand, that which does teach Christ is apostolic, even if Judas or Annas or Pilate or Herod should propound it. And We could say the same today of any other preacher, whether it's Billy Graham, on the one hand, or Neil Harvey on the other? Which gospel is he preaching? Paul certainly couldn't be accused of of pulling his punches, could he? Because he repeats himself, as we have already said, verse 9. So now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Condemned. And there's an exclamation mark there. Now, the Greeks, uh, they didn't have an exclamation mark, but it certainly deserves to be there in an English translation. You can look at various uh, translations, of course. Uh, J.B. Phillips, who did his own translation many years ago now, he puts this verse like this. He says, You have heard me say it before, and now I put it down in black and white may anybody who preaches any other gospel than the one you have already heard be a damned soul. That's serious business, isn't it, to talk like that? Obviously not a trivial matter. We may think that when Paul talks about people being eternally condemned, we may think, whoa, that's extreme language. But Paul certainly doesn't think so, does he? Because he repeats himself. And repeats himself forcibly. This is no slip of the pen. It does cause discomfort to some old uh, New Testament scholars. One of them called James Dunn. He's written a number of books. Spent his whole life studying the New Testament. In one of his books he says uh, he highlights the unity and the diversity of the New Testament writings. And then he concludes... That There are a number of different theologies in the New Testament. He doesn't use the word, doesn't say there are a number of different Gospels, but he might as well. But Paul says the opposite, doesn't he? There's only one. There's only one. Peter Barnes, who some of you may have heard of. He's a minister, Presbyterian minister at Reesby in Sydney. Uh, He's a lecturer in... uh, church history, I think, at the Theological College in Sydney, the Presbyterians, he puts it this way. He says, no minister, no bishop, no synod, no pope, no angel has the authority to change this gospel one iota. And could I suggest this is why you should always have your Bible open when someone is preaching. And check, is he being true? To the gospel. It doesn't matter who it is. Is he being true to the gospel? Paul just has one more thing to say in this uh, more or less uh, introductory and yet very serious part of his letter. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. What he's saying, really, is that to take the stand that he is taking is not likely to make a man or a woman very popular. That's why verse 10 is is so, so necessary. Well, I mean, we know, don't we, that popularity is a very fleeting, very fleeting thing at best think of pop stars, movie stars, sports stars, politicians, how they can be uh, up on a pedestal one day and down in the dumps the next. And preaching the gospel and in the way Paul speaks here is not going to make a person popular. And in a way I think it's especially true of ministers of the gospel Ministers, as much as anyone else, uh, want to have friends and, and be well thought of. Ministry can be a very lonely existence when you have to say the straight and the hard things. But it's true, to some degree, for every Christian. I mean, let me put it to you in a couple of questions. How popular are you going to be if you inform your guests on Sunday morning... Uh, that the worship of God comes first, even before your family. Or if you're into sport, how popular are you going to be if you say you're not available to play in the grand final because it's being played on a Sunday and maybe you've been one of the stars of the team? More seriously, how popular are you going to be if you insist in our day and age, in the present climate in which we live, if you insist on the essentials of the gospel, uh, on scripture alone, on Christ alone, on grace alone, and on faith alone. Paul, of course, wasn't writing to ministers. He was writing to the Christians in Galatia, writing them to them collectively and yet individually. As well. And if he were writing to the Christians in Kerrang or Pyramid Hill or Swan Hill or Bendigo or uh, wherever else, he'd say the same things. The question for us is will we collectively, will you individually listen? Let's pray. Father we thank you for the gospel for its glorious message and we know that only the true gospel is truly good news and yet O oh Lord there are these pressures on us in our own lives in the life of the church collectively to water down uh, the truths of scripture we pray O oh Lord that you would help us individually As a congregation, as a denomination, and help your people uh, everywhere to stand firm on the truths of the gospel. Not concerned about popularity, but concerned about faithfulness to you and fidelity uh, to your gospel. Help us in this, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.